entrepreneurs will save the world. We chat with successful entrepreneurs who share their journey and the lessons learned along the way. The Add Value to Entrepreneurs podcast is edutaining, leaving you with actionable advice to transform your life and create a thriving business that aligns with your values and goals. Our conversations are for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life they desire. We focus on the mindset shifts entrepreneurs make to increase their influence and impact in the world. It's time for you to add value. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Publishing. Perfect Publishing is a different approach to publishing a book. Perfect Publishing is sharing a project of hope called The Dose of Hope. We carefully chose heroes of hope who exemplify living a life they created through faith, hope, patience, and persistence. No matter what page you open to in this mini cube of hope, you will find a leader with a big heart. You will see you are not alone. The authors may share similar challenges that only hope and action could resolve. Get your free ebook at addvalue2life.com slash dose. Addvalue2life.com slash dose. I'm excited for today's guest, Brendan Burns. Brendan is a high-performance strategist, CEO, top podcast host, and former Wall Street executive who transforms individuals and companies to maximize their potential in business and life. For over a decade, he has advised some of the world's most recognized brands, from Fortune 100 companies, investment banks, top law firms, and professional sports teams, to C-level executives, billionaires, pro NFL and MLB athletes, celebrities, and politicians from over 70 countries and on six continents. Brendan hosts The Brendan Burns Show, an Apple Top 100 podcast for personal development, business coaching, life transformation, and high-performance growth. Hundreds of thousands have tuned in to hear his candid interviews with eclectic guest list from actor Matthew McConaughey to Jack Canfield and other elite coaches, executives, and self-made millionaires and billionaires. A noted thought leader has been featured in Yahoo Finance, MSNBC, Thrive Global, and more. Brendan speaks on the topics of authenticity and purpose, business mastery, lifestyle design, overcoming anxiety and depression, addiction, and creating healthy relationships. He currently resides in San Diego, California. Brendan Burns and Robert dig deep into Brendan's success and failures. He's very open about his emotional journey and the struggles of addiction in the midst of his success. Brendan shares the freedom he has found in dealing with his issues in a healthy way. He's had great success in making connections and serving others to make a larger impact. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just so excited to have this conversation and just looking forward to learning a bunch and sharing it with the world. Yeah, my pleasure, Robert. I'm excited to be here. All right. So I always start each episode with letting folks share their entrepreneurial journey and what got them into the work they're doing. Wow. Great question. I went to Cornell for law school and business school and found myself working on Wall Street. I was an investment banker at Lazard, and then I worked at a small hedge fund called Steamboat Capital. And when I was at Lazard, I had what I call my quarter life crisis, which not everybody does at that age. Some people have midlife crises, but mine was related to um, a relationship ending abruptly, uh, almost losing my job at Lazard and then a family situation happening with my brother getting sick. And while my brother's okay now, that whole situation prompted me into the self-help section of Barnes and Noble. I was never open to therapy or coaching before that. I didn't even know what coaching was, but got to that self-help section, read a book called The Emotionally Abusive Relationship by Beverly Engel. And that book rocked my life. It was my whole upbringing, it was who I was showing up as in that relationship with that woman. And I tried meeting with all these different therapists in New York City, these $800 an hour Park Avenue psychologists, and they would just sit there and kind of play tic-tac-toe, it felt like. And I even had one woman, when I told her, I was like, I can't stop, you know, freaking out at my girlfriend or like storming out of the apartment. I just can't control it. And she said to me, um, put a rubber band around your wrist that every time you want to freak out, just snap yourself. And I said, there's no way that's the best strategy in 2016 or whatever year it was. Like, there has to be something better than that. Give me, a, give me a drug. Give me a pill. Give me, give me something. Yeah, I mean, even a pill might be better than that. There's got to be something. But I was really looking for kind of like a deeper inner transformation of some kind. And I knew there was something out there. I just didn't know what it was. But when I read The Emotionally Abusive Relationship, 
I Googled the author, Beverly Engel, looked her up. And at the very bottom of her website, almost like in fine print, it said, if you want to have a conversation with Beverly, mail a check for $60 to this address. And in the memo line of the check, put your email address. And so I did. And like months went by, but she actually got back to me and we set up a call and that turned into five years of one-on-one coaching sessions every week. And so after years of that kind of personal development with her and then another couple of coaches, I was at a dinner party one night and I was reading all these books about entrepreneurship. The four hour work week was a, one of the big ones for me. And, but I like, I knew I wanted a four hour work week lifestyle, but I didn't know what I was going to actually do professionally to fulfill it. Like, was it going to be a service-based business, a product-based business, something else? And I thought maybe it would be like my own hedge fund of some kind, like raise a bunch of money, set it and forget it. And I tried that. I tried talking to a bunch of people. Nobody wanted to partner with me on that. And anyway, long story short, I'm at this dinner party. I'm talking to this girl who I knew well. It was a good friend. And the two words that came up for me were coaching and travel. She's like, what do you want to do? I said, coaching and travel. And I took those two words and I wrote it down. I put a sticky note up on my computer. And then during 2016, I started to just take steps towards it. Like, I didn't know what it would look like, but I got a website and I made an Instagram account and I started my podcast and I had no actual service that I was selling it, but there was some kind of momentum and energy of writing about it and doing an email list and just good, like being on these websites, following all these people like Pat Flynn, passive income, uh, Russell Brunson, just kind of being in that world as much as possible. And the more I just kind of, it's like, you know, you walk towards God or you walk towards something, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know exactly if you're on the right track, but you're moving in the right direction. And I was moving in the right direction. I was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but like I'm closer now than I was last week. That's good. And then eventually, you know, it's kind of a funny story. I don't know how much we want to get into it, but I left wall street. I traveled for about a year and then I came back and the latest craze in 2017 was were these online courses. Like you run ads to a live webinar or a pre-recorded webinar, and then you sell an online course. And so for me, I spent my year after Wall Street traveling the world. My Instagram account blew it up, getting free hotels, meals, travel, doing uh, Instagram videos, talking about life and giving coaching advice. And so my course was called Inst- uh, Mastering Instagram, Go From Zero to 20K and Turn Your Followers Into Dollars. And if you stay until the end of the webinar, I'll show you how I get free travel, hotels, and meals using my IG account. And it was all legit. It was based on what I had been doing. And so I got a Facebook ads manager and we blew up the course and like broke the funnel and had a 50K month. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then Facebook uh, banned my ad account because Facebook owns Instagram. And so I kept saying, grow your Instagram, do this on Instagram. And I think Facebook was trying to shut down the Instagram bot software tools that are like grow your Instagram. And they confused me with that, or I don't know, whatever, but long story short, it was like a one year roller coaster, like up to the 50 K and then all the way back down. And I said, this isn't sustainable. Um, coaching is my passion. Anyway, having recurring revenue, higher ticket engagements with humans and being able to create those clients in person and off the reliance of say Facebook ads was what I wanted. And so I was able to do that. And I built up my own coaching business, meeting people in New York, leveraging my network, created that business, brought on another coach, a VA, did that for a while. And then just in the past year, I then created a more scalable high ticket group, which you obviously know about, and scaled that up again. But again, more like on my terms with the diversified marketing system. Uh, But that's kind of in a nutshell, the journey. So let's talk about the idea of all right, back in the very beginning, you just started with two words, coaching and travel. And so that was the the thing you knew you wanted. But now that you're further along in the journey, let's talk about intentionally designing the business around the lifestyle you want. Yeah, it's a great question because I definitely got really sucked into the world of growth for growth's sake and forgetting okay, maybe my plan was if I could make like 20, 30K a month consistently in cash, that would afford me the lifestyle to travel and relax and you know do these things. And then I kept investing in mentorship and masterminds where 
when I got to a point where I was making about a hundred K a month, I was like, I felt so insignificant relative to these guys doing 400 K a month or a million dollars a month or, or even more. And so I'm actually in that season right now, Robert of being more intentional about asking myself why I created this. For example, I've been doing for the past couple of months, a lot of sales calls because we now have this scalable coaching offer. We have a lot of people who are interested, all good problems to have, but my team, my setters have just crushed me with all these sales calls and we don't have a closer. And so like, I don't know, is the answer getting a closer or is that going to just be get more work and more work? And so I'm in a season right now of reevaluating my intentionality around it. But if you can set limits and boundaries and pause growth, because maybe growth isn't going to make you happier, looking at, okay, well, what does coaching look like? Well, what does travel look like too? And so it's funny because next week I'm actually going to Hawaii and I'm going to be working relatively not much at all. I'm taking, I think, three out of the five days completely off and only taking a few calls on the other days. And then the first week of June, I'm going to Europe and that's going to be completely no calls at all. So I'm definitely still working that out and I've gone through seasons. But I think what's worth mentioning is as I've grown it more or become more skilled, which you're doing too, you're investing in your own coaching, you're becoming more skilled, you're growing your business. It's actually easier to have more balance and more fun when you're smaller. <laughs> because it's like, it's harder when people are like, here, take 10 grand, here's my money. And you're like, oh, I want to do that because it's either greed or fear. Or you genuinely want to help that person. But at the end of the day, how do you reconcile that with your needs for balance and fun and enjoying life? Well, you mentioned the word and there's boundaries, right? Is determining what what is it that really matters to me? What's the most important thing? And then how do I build the business to serve that? Right. One of one of my clients recently had a conversation about you know, starting this in-person mastermind. It's like, wait, you want to travel, you know, six months out of the year. <laughs> how are you going to, how is that congruent with starting an in-person mastermind? And of course, I think, you know, part of their motivation is, you know, COVID and, and just missing people and wanting to, to be in a room with, with a group of people. But if, if you want to, if you want to travel a weekly meeting that you, that you facilitate is not congruent with, you know, with your plans. And I think that's why it's important to know what you want and then be determined to set boundaries and make your decisions around those boundaries um, to, to get what you really want versus you mentioned it, right? Profit for profit or growth for growth's sake um, can be challenging. And it, and it, and it, it's, it's a driver, but if you let the wrong thing drive the bus, then, then you get stuck on a bus that you don't want to be on. Exactly. You know, speaking of boundaries, so I volunteer a lot and I speak a lot in San Diego on different topics. And I was just invited this morning to speak at an event uh, tomorrow night. And I'm going to be going to the event, but I told the guy running it, um, I'm going, but if it's okay with you, I'd like to just go and attend for me hmm. and not speak not MC the night, but I just like want to soak and be there. And that's another thing. I don't know if this is a tangent, so feel free to redirect me back on course. But I'm also very much in this place right now where as you kind of work out things that aren't working out and as you get to a better place, you get more opportunity. But sometimes when you say yes to all these opportunities, you're forgetting about the time that you need to continue to grow and take care of yourself. Mm. And so I was just uh, like a year ago, I went to this men's retreat camping thing in San Diego. It was amazing. Um, I went to these talks and personal development seminars. I went to um, all this different stuff and I was just totally receiving it. And then in the past year, I had such transformation. Like my business blew up. I grew. I resolved a lot of stuff. But then what happened was at the men's event, they were like, hey, we want you to be a co-captain of a team next year. Yes. Uh, hey, Brandon, we want you to speak at this thing on Monday instead of go. Yes. Hey, Brandon, on Tuesday, instead of going to this talk, we want you to host it. Yes. On Sunday, we don't want you to just attend. We want you to be a facilitator. Right? And I kept saying yes to everything. And then what I realized is I was just not taking care of myself and not getting the healing and the restoration and the growth and the self-care that I needed. <laughs> so let's talk about that and and giving yourself permission for self-care and, and having boundaries around 
your self-care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it used to be really hard for me to set boundaries for sure. Like writing a text like I did to my friend this morning, which is easy, like compassionately saying, wow, you know, I really appreciate that. And like in any other situation, you know, I would jump at the opportunity to speak to a room of 50 to hundred people in San Diego in person. Like, I love that feeling of having that impact. And then someone comes up to me after and they're like, I'm going to be you in one year. Like, this is awesome. And I'm coming, you know, or there's so many different things people come up. So I love that, but I'm at a point now where I've done a lot of work on boundaries. And so it's not that challenging for me to just say, yeah, you know, I really appreciate that. But right now this is the kind of work for me and, you know, definitely consider me in, you know, June or July for something like that. Um, the harder part that I'm working out now is like knowing what I need, when I need to set boundaries. So being in touch with where I'm at enough to say, I should say no to that. It used to be just hard for me to say no to it. Now it's not hard. It's just like knowing that discipline and knowing what I need. And I don't know if this resonates with you or your audience, but sometimes when I'm working so much or I'm such in that like type A movement process, I'm not fully engaged with my body and my breath mm -hmm. and what's going on in my heart. And so then I'm just like, boom, boom, boom. Yes, yes, yes. Like just straight up hunter, gatherer, like no slow pace. And then just saying yes, not because it's hard for like, oh, if I said no to them, I'm not going to be codependent or hurt or emotional. But it's more just like, I don't even know that I should be saying no and how to recognize that and be aware of it. Oh, so good. So obviously you mentioned your quarter life crisis, uh, the, the movement hiring Beverly Engel as, as a coach and, and dealing with that emotional side of, of, of your life. So, so let's talk about the, that connection between, you know, who you are emotionally and, and who you show up, how you show up in the world. Yeah. When I first met Beverly, she took me through this feelings exercise and said, okay, I want you to repeat after me. Um, I'm angry that, I'm not angry. Okay. Brendan, fill in the blank. I'm sad that I'm not sad about anything. She's like, okay. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm like, ah, it's such a waste of time. Why did I book this call with her? <laughs> okay, Brendan, I'm guilty that long silent pause. I'm ashamed that, so, you know, down the whole list, and, and then she just paused and she said, Brandon, what was the last time you cried? And I was 25 or six when she asked me that. And it had been possibly a good 10 years. And so that was a big part of my recovery was getting, not being emotional all the time, not living in my emotions, not always identifying with temporary emotions, but having some healthy awareness and engagement with what I was feeling. And Beverly helped teach me that, you know, one of the things that I needed to learn was that it's okay to have feelings and that you got to slow down, put your feet on the ground and figure out what's going on inside of us. Cause I think most people, act in ways that are unhealthy or sabotage or hurt us, whether it's a compulsive behavior and addiction and escapism, something like social media, shopping, food, drinking, whatever. And it's like the, the steps towards stepping away from that behavior is taking a deep breath, feet on the ground, palms up. Where am I at? And that was like the most foreign language to me from coming from a business school and law school background, working as an investment banker. There was no time to do that. Hmm. Like we were always working. And then when we weren't working, you were either lifting weights at the Equinox downstairs at 30 Rock or we were out for drinks. So you're just constantly doing stuff to not intentionally be away from your emotions, although maybe. And so that was a big thing that Beverly taught me was the emotional connection. And then we also, she has a therapy background. So we looked at a bunch of stuff from my past, which was super helpful. And ultimately finding that beginning of personal development, figuring out who I was, which then I was able to turn into part of my offerings. Before I did business coaching, I was mostly doing life coaching and I was helping people out with a lot of this stuff. So let's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to keep digging because this is, this is important. I think, yeah. you know, we've been taught men, especially 
you know, I think of my father, you know, who spent his entire life believing it wasn't okay to cry. It wasn't, you know, and we tell children, you know, or, or teenagers, especially, you know, don't be angry instead of, instead of experience that emotion. And, and so there is, I feel like emotional education is missing just as much as financial education is missing from our, our experience and, and helping people understand that our emotions, our feelings are simply the body. It's a signaling system, right? It's like a check engine light. <laughs> and so they're, 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 they're sending you a message and we've been, many of us have been taught to ignore that message or that it's not okay to express that message. And we shove that message down inside of us and turn our insides into a mess until, until we're willing to listen to that message and allow it to do just allow it to, to, to do its thing, right. To send the message and say, Oh, I'm aware. Okay. I hear you. <laughs> right. So, so help me in, in your journey. How, how did, how did that start processing for you? Yeah. Well, just to first back up, you know, looking at my family lineage, because I am a big believer in generational curses and things get passed down through family lines. Well, you just get taught, right? Your parents are working from the, the best tools that they have. You're working with the best tools that you have. And, and of course we pass on what we think was the right information. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm literally, so I grew up Jewish and my middle name starts with H, the same H of Herman, my great grandfather on my dad's side. This guy was, I, I never met him. He died before I was born. But apparently the guy had the biggest anger problem. Like he literally was parked his car on a hill and he was so mad at the car. He was like hitting the car and the car like fell down the hill and like ran him. Like he's the first guy who ever ran himself over due to blind rage. And he would, uh, you know, get into fender benders. He would shout, he would scream. And so that got passed on to me. And my dad definitely had his own struggles with anger and rage and to his credit, there wasn't a lot of information on how to deal with that. It's just, you know, you either had it or you didn't. And back then it's like, what are you going to do? This whole field wasn't popularized. It was very, therapy was very taboo. So he had his struggles. My mom, same thing. Like she had a really challenging upbringing, abuse, all these things. And so she was very much a coper and she would go into different types of behaviors, uh, workaholism, addiction, acting out with other men. And so there was just a lot of emotional pain that they both carried. And then there wasn't a lot of uh, discussion about it. Like you said, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of healing, a lot of, uh, you know, work to be done that could have been done that we now know exists. There are tools and solutions to these problems. So I just kind of grew up very much a number like, you know, work for sure. Still like working that out of, oh, my God, the business is so much fun. But growing up, school was a great escape for me because I was good at it and I got good grades. And it's like a clear path towards then you go to a good high school, you then go to a good college, you get a good job. So I was like, oh, OK, I just kept checking all those boxes. Um, but for me specifically, and feel free to you know dig deeper on this, but it was Beverly first bringing attention to all of this and me realizing, oh, OK, there's you know something going on here. And then. I think ultimately I was always driven by different goals than what most people have. I think a lot of people want to make a lot of money and have success and have this big career. And I was very fortunate that growing up, especially my stepfather was a very, very successful lawyer on Long Island. He represented Howard Stern and Joey Botafuco and he had a TV show and all these things. And he was so jacked up. Like he had a Bentley, he had a Rolls Royce, he had a limo, he had a multi-multi-million dollar house on the water, a big 38-foot boat. And he was just so, like, he was addicted to everything, like pills. He got disbarred, kicked out of the New York Bar Association, like all, it all spiraled out. And so I think I'm actually fortunate to have experienced and seen that money is not the answer. Hmm. And so when I'm 25 and I'm in that relationship, and she abruptly ends it. And then I find Beverly. I was like, oh, my God, all this emotions. That's uh, I don't know if I want to do that. But at the end of the day, I felt confident in the marketplace. I felt confident with other things in my life, gym, health, wellness, business, money. The real area that was kind of missing that I needed to press into was learning 
how to love, how to be loved, how to do relationships, family, spirituality, friendships, community in healthy ways. And the block for me was emotional unmanageability, um, inability to know what I was feeling, inability to know how to handle those emotions and really sabotaging and pushing away good people and chasing the wrong ones and all these things because I didn't have that emotional sobriety. And so that started with Beverly and then continued with um, a coach named George Collins based in Northern California um, who specializes in porn and sex addiction. And he helped me a lot through that. And then I had other coaches. I got super into Tony Robbins and it's just like continue down this path where it's become a huge part of my life. And yeah, it's, it's really important. I think it's always a good reminder, especially as you're working your way up the chain. Cause it happened for me too. As I got healthier, then I was like, oh, okay, I'm good. I'm just going to go into business more or travel more or whatever. And it's like, it's kind of like working out for your mind or for your inner spirituality, your mental health. And so it's really hopefully a good reminder for other people too, that this type of personal development, it's an ongoing process. It's not something that you just handle and then you're good. It's like, a, it's like brushing your teeth, you know, continuing to meditate, pray, surrender, grow, talk about it, feel it like it's definitely ongoing. And it's been frustrating for me, just to be honest, like, I want to just build my business more or have more fun or do I'm like, Oh, I have to go. And that's obviously the wrong way to look at it. But it's it's caused me to be more patient and make healthy sacrifices and uh, surrender more. Nice. So you mentioned the porn addiction, you mentioned um, finding sobriety in that. And most people aren't willing to talk about it. Right. I mean, obviously, I think it's a huge issue. It's it's a huge issue, not just the church is bringing it out, you know, in many cases, but but it's really uh, it's an issue that affects now men and women in, in large portions, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. And and I think it's an escape on one side. It's a it, it's creating you know a bunch of false false reality on the other. It's kind of the original VR right um, <laughs> world but, but fake, you know, and, and so what led you to recognize that that was an issue and, and, and dealing with it? Cause obviously as a single guy, everybody'd be like, Oh, it's just, you know, it's whatever, man. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I was at a party in New York city and I was talking to some of my friends about this, about how I was just quitting porn and one of the guys there goes, you don't watch porn? You're, you're not like, are you a man? Like the exact opposite view of really what porn is or what it should be. And I'll just read. I, I actually spoke about this in San Diego a couple of weeks ago. So I, I have a couple of statistics here. Uh, first of all, it's difficult for scientists to conduct studies on pornography and the harms of pornography. Because researchers cannot find enough men who don't watch porn to have a control group. Isn't that wild? We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by the newly released book, Dream Life Planner, Move from Tired and Overwhelmed to Free and Empowered by Noelle L. Peterson. Available on Amazon. Or you can order a personalized signed copy at empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, to dream.com. That's empower number two dream.com. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. Uh, a couple other ones here 20% of men and 13% of women admit to watching porn while at work. Um, one in four internet searches is for pornography. And the most popular day for viewing pornography is Sunday, which for most people, you know, that's their Sabbath. So I want to share a couple of those stats. But for me, the I realized it was an issue through Beverly. She really called me out on it and was able to help me identify it. So for others, how can you figure out if it's an issue? Therapy, coaching, doing personal development. Usually when you start to do that type of work on yourself for whatever reason, it will expose the least common denominator. Mm -hmm. What are the best things about your life? What are the worst? What are the good? What are the problems? And so Working with a great therapist, coach, 
helped bring that to the surface for me. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you don't know that it, like what you're doing is a problem. You know, there are a lot of people out there who, I mean, they're, they're like alcoholics who don't know they're alcoholics or maybe they do deep down, but maybe they're just like very heavy they're, drinkers. And they're they don't, functional. Yeah. Functional or, you know, heavy porn users who just think that that's normal. They don't understand the negative consequences. And I don't really know a lot about those people, even though I used to be that person, because that's not who I serve. I don't go out and try to convince people to get help. If they don't admit they have a problem, I'm more like, Hey, can you help me? Yes. But yeah. So for a long time, I it was probably a problem and I didn't know it was. And then once I it was exposed to the light through Beverly and then George, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is, uh, this is gnarly. This is impacting intimacy for me. This is a time suck and energy suck. This is really bad for my brain and my dopamine and my endorphins and my serotonin and my neural wiring in my brain. And so after realizing it was a problem and then going in and getting a lot of support, um, April 1st, 2021. So it's, a little over 14 months now of uh or 13 months no pornography and it's for sure a, a much much healthier and better life for me so let, let's talk about that because so many people use the language like there's no victim right it's not a it's not a it's not a bad thing and you mentioned some really powerful things in there about you know intimacy time energy yeah so so the victims in in porn usage uh first of all you you're a huge victim, the user, because of the negative impact it has on you. Um, anyone in your life is also victimized by it because when you invite in, uh, you know, one of my mentors always says, porn is an illegitimate solution to a legitimate problem. Hmm. So you have a legitimate problem, which goes back to what we're talking about, about your emotions, but it's an illegitimate solution. So what you're doing is you're victimizing yourself by handling a real problem in a non-real way or non-effective way. And that trickles down to everyone in your life, your wife, your kids, your friends, your clients. Like you're basically showing up in a way, whether or not you're saying it or even knowing it, but you're saying, Hey, I'm here. I have pain. I have problems just like everyone else but I am going to an illegitimate solution. I'm going to a cheap substitute for intimacy. I'm going to something damaging to resolve those problems. And when you show up energetically like that in the world, other people latch onto that. Hmm. You know, we don't mimic our parents' behaviors because they say, hey, Robert, I'm not going to feel my feelings and you shouldn't either. <laughs> your dad didn't come into the room and say, I'm feeling really angry, but I'm going to suppress it. And I expect you to do the same. I doubt he ever said that to you. you know, he said the opposite. He said, you know, do, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So everything that he was doing, we adopt and adapt into. And so the victims of porn usage are ourselves, our loved ones, anyone that we ever get asked for support or advice from our clients or coworkers or mm. peers. Um, I think for sure your loved one, you know, your partner, your spouse is like tremendously impacted by it. And so is your relationship with that person. You now start to unfairly see them in an unrealistic light relative to what you're looking at. You have expectations. You can sexualize and objectify both them and other men or women in your world. And then obviously, I mean, I haven't fully studied all of this, but I know that people, uh, the people who portray in pornography, the actors and actresses are, are very often victims of sexual abuse and other forms of abuse. Uh, the suicide rates, the depression rates, the anxiety rates are very high. And so I don't think that, uh, you know, spending time, energy and effort, like supporting and viewing and being a part of that world is very good for our society because if people pulled away from that and the demand went down, would hopefully release those people to do other things with their lives. Hmm. Yeah, so powerful. And absolutely the, the people in the industry are are victims and and obviously the industry is driven by a huge money machine. Um, right. but we all know how the money the money machine doesn't benefit the the people on the front line typically. Right, and that's the other thing too is what my old coach, George Collins, he used to go on, he would do these open debates 
where they would bring in a like an owner of a pornography company and they, he would take the mic and say stuff like, oh, it enhances people's sex lives and it's good and all this stuff and liberating and free. And then George would come up and say, uh, you know, I saw that, you know, you already have millions of dollars and you've already done this yet. You continue to find these very young women and employ them and do these movies and all this stuff. And the guy off the record turned to George and said, yeah, well, I need a second Rolls Royce. <laughs> and he was being honest. He was all jacked up. And it's, you know, these people, uh, you're right. Like not only are the people in the films or whatever, you know, harming themselves, it's having a tremendous negative impact on them and their lives, but it's also, are they even reaping the financial rewards of it versus the people who control the, uh, the companies? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your, your vulnerability and, and your willingness to, to, to share. And, and it is a sad, both that statistic you shared and then just even your friends, your friends comment, you know, are you even a man? Like yeah. it's, it's so normalized that, that it's, that it's expected and, and men that are willing to stand up and set a boundary men that are willing to say, I don't need this in my life. You know, no, um, it, it's, uh, are, are a rare breed. No, but, I'm, I, I appreciate that. I, I'm also really grateful that I had men do that for me and be really outspoken because even though years ago I saw it was a problem and I worked towards stopping it, it wasn't until I really, like I said, because it's only been about a year and I'm continuing to lean into that and build that. But it was really the past year I'd kind of like gotten accustomed to saying, okay, it's not hijacking my life anymore. So like, I'll just use it a little bit. But the reality was it was still a problem because when there's something in your life that you want to stop and you can't stop it, that's an addiction. Right. That's just what the definition of what an addiction is. <laughs> so I had told myself, oh, you know, it's, it's not an addiction because I only do it this infrequently. No, that's still an addiction. You may um, be okay with doing it, like Diet Coke. For example, I had a roommate in Barcelona, and I was like, dude, you're addicted to Diet Coke. You drink like five of them every day. And he goes, I'm not addicted. I said, he said yeah, you are. He goes, how much do you want to bet? I said, I don't know, whatever. So we made some kind of bet. I don't even know if it was monetary. But for 30 days, he couldn't drink Diet Coke. And he quit, and it was not a problem at all. He had no cravings. He had no withdrawal. It wasn't like three days in. He was like, you know, chewing table wood or scratching. <laughs> he legitimately was not addicted. Like 30 days is also always a good test for addiction. See if it's an addiction or not. And so he went 30 days, no problem. And then after starts drinking his Diet Cokes again, I was like, you're right. You're not addicted. For me, <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. And, you know, maybe I'd gone 30 days, but I also like then would always go back to it and Anyway, long story short, my point is I'm grateful that I had people in my community and in my life who were very outspoken at the harms of it. There's a guy that I surf with and his son or multiple sons, I think, had addictions to it. And so it's also a generational thing, too. Like, I think some of the older generations were blessed to not be raised in a world with the access to all the high speed Internet free. Oh, no, it's, it's utterly ridiculous right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, it's like people just can pull out their phone and do it in two seconds. And same thing with uh, the dating apps, too. It's like, but anyway, yeah, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's definitely something we need to talk about more. And I can tell you for sure, being on this journey, walking away from it, being an advocate for helping people quit is a big part of my life and has brought me a lot of fruit by being able to step away from it. Well, and so let's talk about the benefits emotionally for you and your business. How has your life changed through this growth process of not just because obviously you're a, you, you started out super smart. You're you're an incredibly intelligent young man. You 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 you're one of few who ever got a law degree and a business degree at the same time at an Ivy League school. I mean, let's be honest. You're incredibly intelligent, and so now you've combined. That in, that intelligence, that ability to learn, ability to apply things, with an emotional control, at, at a completely different level, and and a raised awareness of your spirituality. So now your mind, body, and spirit are aligning. Right? Maybe they're not there yet, but they're aligning to to lead you towards impact. Right? Towards uh, making a difference in the world. And so let's talk about that power, how that, how that energy has shifted. 
first of all, I want to say thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, maybe it's I got lucky in the gene pool, but I've also worked hard over the years and studied a lot and worked probably too hard in high school. So thank you. But what I was, well, yeah, what I was going to say, though, the four words that came up for me were passion, impact, fulfillment and service. So the first one is passion. You know, you go to Cornell, JD MBA, go to Wall Street, make a bunch of money. There wasn't passion, though, there for me. The passion was in entrepreneurship, four hour work week, lifestyle, business building. And if you're not in touch with yourself emotionally and spiritually, you don't know what you're passionate about. Most people do either what their parents did or what their parents want them to do. Mm. So wow. it's either their parents were successful lawyers, doctors, bankers, and they say, hey, you got to do this too because I want you to be successful. Or their parents were cattle farmers in Ireland and they're like, you're going to be a doctor because you're never going to live like us. We're not going to allow that. Now, I was the former. My parents were both lawyers. So it was, you're going to go to the school. And, and to be fair, my parents didn't really pressure me, but it was just, it's the easy thing. You grow up, you're talking about the Supreme Court, you're talking about constitutional law when you're 14. And so by the time you take the LSATs, it's just like a breeze right in because that's your background. So when you're not in touch with yourself emotionally, spiritually on a deeper level, you never really look in the mirror or sit down and say, Hey God, like, why am I here? And so having that growth and that experience that you're talking about that I've had allowed me to sit down, go to the beach or what I would do is I would leave the country because in being in New York city with all the work and the buildings and the wall street and the suits, I couldn't concentrate. And I, I would go out to Brooklyn. I would ride my bike or the subway out to Bushwick. I was like, I want to really get out there. And so I would book these tickets to Copenhagen or Poland or Australia or Japan. I was like, I want to be somewhere where nobody even speaks English. Like I'm as far as possible from a wall street uh, briefcase in the world, like an owl cafe in Tokyo. I sit there and I take out my journal. It's like, all right, what am I here for? Coaching and travel, coaching, you know, helping people, addiction, recovery, marriage restoration, life coaching, business coaching, entrepreneur, nomad, like help. So, okay. So I figured out my passion. That turns into impact because when you pursue your passion, you're going to have a bigger impact. That's just kind of how it works. Like if I am faithful to tuning in to whoever my creator is, and he says this, this is your passion and you obediently follow that, great. You will have an impact. That'll just happen inevitably. So that came. The third one is fulfillment. So this is something that Tony Robbins talks about, the difference between success and fulfillment. I genuinely believe anyone can be successful. Most people aren't, but if people put their mind to it, anyone can. You can read books, you can go on YouTube, you can put the work in, you can be successful. But again, going back to my stepfather, jacked up, comes home one night in this black Bentley with plush interior. It was P. Diddy's former car. And my mom comes out. She's like, what are you doing? That's you mean two Bentleys? <laughs> what do you need two Bentleys? You can't even afford the first one. So we know success doesn't make us happy. Otherwise, he wouldn't need the second Bentley and the third and fourth. And fifth. So it's fulfillment. That's really ultimately what we, we're here for. And that's what we want. We want to feel fulfilled. We want certainty, uncertainty, passion, joy, travel, fun, love, connection. Those are the things that we want. And again, by doing my spiritual development, it enabled me to say, okay, wait a minute here. Like success, that's half the battle. It's not nothing. You know, I want to be successful because success with your passion turns into impact. So that's good. But if you're all success, you're the guy who's 75 years old and you live in La Jolla in the nicest house, but you're grumpy all day. You know, I used to coach these guys, these real estate hedge fund guys, these real estate developers, they do these deals and it's like, boom, you make 500 K in one deal, a million bucks, one deal. It's like, dude, go be happy. But they don't allow themselves to, cause there's no spiritual growth. There's no fulfillment. They're not enjoying their money because some of them are saying, well, I, you know, I have to reinvest this so I can be even more successful. It's like, dude, go take your girl to the Ritz and Laguna and have a nice little weekend, man. Come on. Or take a week off. Cause it's not just about success. It's the fulfillment. And that's something that started to come for me too. And then the last thing is service. And that's really just a continuation of all of the above is how can I realize that at the end of the day, my life is designed 
to make sure I'm okay, yes, but really to serve and be there for other people. There is suffering, there is a lack of success, there's a lack of fulfillment, there's all these things that I can do to serve others, not codependently, not people pleasing. A lot of times I charge money for it and that's okay. But ultimately, how can I be of service to the people in need? I've walked through this as I've pursued my passion, my impact, my fulfillment. I'm now in this position where I can be of service to others. And so how do I go out and I go do that? Mm, so important. And I, and I think it's that same reflection. We, you know, we talked about in the beginning about knowing, knowing what you want out of life, being able to set boundaries to make your decisions around that. It's kind of the same way, knowing the impact that you want to make. How do you build your business around, around making that impact? And yeah. if you can combine those two, right, impact and design, then you can have a pretty fulfilled life. 100%. You got to be intentional about your business and your life and your relationships and make sure you're being intentional about creating what you want and what's going to make you happy, what's going to set you up for success and fulfillment and the ability to serve others. Because if you just say, okay, I just, you know, I'm going to get my business to here. And then from there, I'm going to scale and do this and bring in these people and just grow. It's like, it becomes selfish. It becomes, uh, you know, to success, not fulfilled. And it, if you forget the impact on other people you can have. Absolutely. So let's talk about, you mentioned uh, working with these headphones guys that, you know, get big paydays and then don't, don't enjoy it. But let's talk about the value of, of play and fun. Yeah, it's so important. I think that, and we can talk about a bunch of different things about this, but one of them I think is that as you become more successful, you tend to attract even more successful people into your life. And so when I was starting up my coaching business, had a bunch of clients, you know, making 10, 12, 15 K a month. I was really happy. I was really comfortable. I was making a difference. I had a lot of downtime, a lot of time for travel, a lot of time for fun, a lot of time for the gym. I mean, I was even in a position where I don't know, in 2020, I had one kind of junior coach who fulfilled a lot of my coaching work for me. I had maybe a third of the clients, maybe 40% of the clients. And then I had like a virtual assistant and I was bringing in, the company was probably bringing in between 20 and 30 K. I was probably keeping 20 of it a month. And it's like, I don't own a yacht. I don't have, I didn't have a big mortgage at the time. I was actually for a long time living in this really affordable place in New York city. It was like 1800 a month, which for New York, right? I, mean, I think it's still now low globally with where all these, or not globally, but in the U S based on all this inflation, but I didn't have a lot of expenses. And so I'm living like a king. You know, let's say the business had 12 clients. Anthony's coaching seven or eight of them. I'm coaching four or five. That's like an hour of work a day. Like average day would be like a team stand up for 30 minutes, one or two coaching sessions, and then maybe a sales call. But we weren't doing a lot of sales because we were just really retaining who we had and we weren't in high growth mode. So my typical day was wake up, meditate, journal, read, pray, uh, do that for like a solid one to two hours. It was like Mr. Rogers lifestyle. Uh, then I would work out. No, I would work out later in the day typically, but I would have a lot of time in the morning. I'd relax and go walk my dog, take my first call usually at 10, do calls from like 10 to 1, 10 to 2. And then I would cook and I would meal prep and then I would go to the gym at night. I'd go to the Equinox in Midtown Manhattan. And then I maybe I'd go do something with friends after I had a really good life. <laughs> and then I started building this all up. And, uh, but, but the point is, I think it's about being, like you said, being intentional about how do we scale it while also preserving those boundaries and those limitations and that self-care, because you don't have to work a hundred thousand times harder to grow your business. And I think that's probably a missing piece that I didn't get from a mentorship perspective. When I started saying, how do I get to hundred K a month? The people who were teaching me how to do that had really poor quality of life balances. And they were all like, you know, just if you can't make hundred K a month on your own, like you're doing something wrong. And I don't disagree with that, but I think, you know, there's two ways to make hundred K a month alone you know, and you start to see like, okay, you start weighing yourself or you stop weighing yourself because you don't want to. 
packing on the pounds, you're tired, you're stressed out all the time. I would happily take that 100K in revenue and have one or two people that I'm paying even 10K a month to do the majority of the work. That's how I've always been. And yes, there's some truth to, well, you want to figure it out, your, do it yourself first so you can master it before you train other people. But I think, again, th this is maybe a good learning lesson that I've had that could save some of your listeners' times is don't just hire mentorship from people who have the business you want. Hire the people who have the business and the life that you want. Oh, that, I mean, it goes right back to the, the boundaries in the beginning, right? What is it that you really want? Design... The life is the choice. The, you can build any kind of business. You can't change the life, right? And so if you want it, you need to choose the lifestyle first and then build the business around it instead of trying to, you know, make your life conform to your business, which so many people, you know, try to do because they feel like the business is in control. And, and I think the reality is you get to choose. <laughs> you get to design your life and then you can build a business in lots of different ways to, to support that life. Yep. Well said. Mm, so good. All right. You mentioned some pretty good routines in there. So let's talk about your, your morning routine and evening routine and, and how important those are to you. Yeah. I've gone through phases of so many different ones. <laughs> I would say, Hmm. Right now, what it typically looks like is wake up, I usually have a two hour buffer between waking up and starting work. And I would say the main things are for sure some kind of reading, you know, reading meditation, prayer, uh, making sure that I set my frame for what the day is going to look like. You know, the book of Proverbs in the Bible is excellent. So I will, will maybe read that day's corresponding verse. So, you know, Proverbs nine on May 9th, for example, and what will usually come up is something around how like, you know, a reminder to not chase money too hard or a reminder of what's most important in my spiritual development. So that's an example of it. I'll probably read for like 20, 30 minutes um, and then meditate, mi music, surrender something for another 20, 30 minutes. And then that'll be my first hour will pretty much be in bed. Um, I also keep my phone downstairs, sometimes powered off, but definitely like I can't just reach and have my phone. It just doesn't happen because it's not there. So that's another thing that's important to me. But then usually from there, I'll come downstairs, check my phone, see if there's anything urgent. I won't even respond typically, but I'll just say, okay, what's up? It's usually just some friends who texted me. Um, and then, yeah, I'll spend that next hour uh, walking my dog, preparing breakfast, more music, more meditation, uh, maybe workout, but usually I'll work out later or surf that day. So I'm trying to create at least a two hour buffer, but I think it would be helpful to even get back to three. You know, there's a book that Tim Ferriss likes. Uh, I forget what it's called, but if you just Google like Tim Ferriss book about habits, it, he studied, um, it, Tim didn't write it. He just recommends it. But the author studied like a hundred or the 200 most influential people of all time, you know, in modern history. Like he looked at, the painters, he looked at the authors, he looked at Hemingway, he looked at um, politicians, I believe. And he actually studied their morning routines and daily routines and evening routines. And I read it. And my takeaway was, uh, it was, you know, kind of counterintuitive, but makes sense, which is these guys did not work 15 hours a day. They just didn't. They, the typical routine was wake up, something similar to what I do. Uh, and they would have two productive workday sessions. So they would have like a nine to noon, you know, focused either writing or creating or working of some kind. They would take a full hour, like go for a long walk around town. They would either prepare lunch or have someone come in and prepare lunch for them. And they would take a full hour for lunch. And then they would do like a one to four block, same thing. And then they were done at like 4 p.m. Like boom, family, friends, relaxing. And so this is, uh, you know, sometimes you say something out loud and you're like, oh, this is good. I need this too, because I'm in that season two of moving more towards that. And it, it's, I think if you're working, like when I went to law school too, you saw so many people grinding. Like, oh, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Oh, I'm going to be in the library. It's like, that's not necessary. My opinion. And the same thing when we took law school finals, which are kind of pressure cookers because you're hundred percent of your grade in every class is the final. 
But I would let's say you get like three hours. I would come in super chill. I would like spend twice as long reading the question as everyone else. Like most people would like skim the question and then frantically type for three hours. No bathroom breaks, no oxygen breaks. I would come in super chill and have like a Kit Kat bar, bottle of water, deep breath. They give me the facts. I'd read it, take my time, take my sweet time. Okay. I would do like a third of it. And then I would go to the bathroom and I would just walk around. I remember Cornell Law School, Myron Taylor Hall. It's called. I would go walk around the law school for like 10 minutes. And people were like, are you cheating? Are you like, what's going on with this guy? You know, why is he doing this? But I would, I would clear my head. I would do like, it would be like three essay questions. I'd do the first. I'd go for a long walk, clear my head, relax. And everyone's like, got to have like 6,000 words. <laughs> Come back, read the second one. Think about it, have a little piece of my Kit Kat bar, write my answer, nice and cool, make sure I answer it, but nice and calm. Same thing, bathroom, walk, hit the water fountain, go downstairs, walk, get some oxygen, come back in. By the way, you can't cheat in law school because uh, everything's open book anyway. So it's not like I was going anywhere, talking to anyone, right? And then come back, third question, answer it, all good. First semester. A in contracts, A plus in constitutional law, taught by Michael Dorff, who uh, served on the Supreme Court as a clerk and went to Harvard and Harvard Law, uh, A minus in civil procedure. And uh, long story short, I got a job at um, Cravath, Swain and Moore, which I think is like the number one ranked law firm in the world. And and the way I did it was I, you know, I was obviously well prepared. It's not like I didn't study. I worked hard. I studied for those tests. But I was very calm and I paced myself and I didn't, you know, get all like you know, frantic or try to do the most amount of typing. I just took my time and kind of eased into it. And I think it's the same thing with entrepreneurship and business building. Like I see a lot of people, they're like, got to do TikTok ads before it gets saturated. And they like spend their whole weekend recording TikTok ads. And then it's like, got to do this. Gotta. It's like, oh, chill out. Like the biggest constraint in your business is your mindset. Calm down. It's all good. Absolutely. Well, and that that energy, right? You think about that energy, how much energy is wasted in that stuff you don't have control over. And so having, you know, just the chill, there, there's value. There's a lot of a lot of energy saving in chill. Oh my goodness. Yes. It's it's like that. And even in sales too. Like I used to go through these sales trainings and you know, you gotta like get them to admit the four reasons why they have to buy it on the call today and all this stuff. And you know, there's still definitely a time and place where you gotta close them live and you wanna make sure you take advantage of that opportunity. But there's also a lot of times where I'm just pull it way back, you know. So there you go. Yeah. So all right, I I don't want to miss this before we go. So what, yeah. what's been the impact of of hosting your podcast? Oh man, um there's been so many impacts both on me and on others, but I would say the biggest, hmm. I'd say the biggest impact on others would probably be, I've talked vulnerably about porn recovery, relationship trauma, depression, and anxiety. And I think that's had a big impact obviously on others who are really looking for that transformation in their life. And I would say the biggest impact on me is um, working out, both imposter syndrome on the front end of like, you know, who am I to deserve these guests and why do I, you know, Matthew McConaughey, NFL athletes, had a guy on the Patriots come on, stuff like that. And then, and then once I worked through the imposter syndrome, then I was like, oh, then I thought I was God. And then I had to do like the ego and pride work to take it down. The first I was too low, that was too high. So it's really made me uh, confident, but not cocky and finding that balance. Oh man, that's so good. <laughs> I go straight from imposter syndrome to God. That's a pretty good yeah, shift. Right? From zero <laughs> to 500, take it down. Oh, all right, Brandon, what's the big dream? For me? Yeah. I think I have all the tools and I kind of have the dream and it's just about chiseling. It's like you, uh, you got to get the clay, then you got to learn how to sculpt. And it's all sort of set up now. It's just about chiseling. It's about taking down my work hours, having more fun, focusing more on passion, fulfillment, relationships. So I've 
I have the canvas and I have a lot of it dialed in, but it's now just kind of refining and prioritizing stuff. Nice. I like yeah. it. Yeah, man. All right. Now you've sat with a young entrepreneur having that, that coffee for an hour and you want to leave them with Brendan's words of wisdom. What would you share? I would say do it for you. Uh, go to the opportunity that you feel like you're called to, not what you think you can make money doing. Um, focus on your personal development because that's going to be the most important thing. Like the business grows when you grow and just really stay focused on growing your love, your power, your strength, your masculine, your feminine, all of that energetically dialing that in and your business will be fine. Oh. Brendan, thank you so much for sharing today. I appreciate your vulnerability, appreciate your stories and definitely appreciate your wisdom. My pleasure, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you at addvaluemindset.com. That's addvaluemindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. addvaluemindset.com. In our next episode, Renee Kosler. Renee is a former professor turned entrepreneur. She took the most favorite parts of being a professor and created a coaching and speaking practice. She values the essence of desire and finds that when people identify their desires and move towards them, their life demonstrates fullness and aliveness.